We now return to our discussion of wealth inequality and the decimation of the middle class since the 1980s to date. Enjoy. And arguably, it is these dire straits that has beset the majority population of our country that are responsible for the Trump victory in 2016 rather than the unproven overstated nonsense that it was Russian intervention that was the main factor that brought Trump's presidency to fruition rather than these economic empirical realities that we are reviewing in this show tonight that have barely got a mention over the last 10 years of mainstream media coverage. If you consider these economic downturns that we have experienced and examined them. One was, of course, during the Great Recession. According to the International Monetary Fund, the Great Recession was from 2007 to 2009, and when you include its recovery period, it was the most severe economic and financial meltdown since the Great Depression. How did the system respond? In 2008, the Emergency Economic Stabilization Act was signed into law, creating some $700 billion program to purchase devalued assets from banks, according to this Business Insider YouTube we just listened to. Many remember the program as the TARP program, the Troubled Asset Relief Program, but of that $700 billion, only $75 billion was used to help reduce interest payments for homeowners. That's just 10%. The other 90% went where? Went to banks and corporations. This is who our government serves, the ultra-rich. It's not the priority interests of the majority population as a real democracy should work. Rather, their priority is to serve the most wealthy, as evidenced by the history of their behavior. This, this $700 billion 2008 Emergency Economic Stabilization Act is just another of a long list of unreported corporate welfare programs. If you look at the COVID crisis, according to the May 28, 20 Fortune magazine report, it bears reiterating over 40 million Americans had filed for unemployment during the pandemic, and the real jobless rate was over 23%, almost 24%. With the crisis COVID, many business closed, and the Small Business Association, a federal agency, made $349 billion available to small businesses with the Paycheck Protection Program, but $243 billion of that, or some 70%, was snapped up by large corporations, according to the segment we just heard. During the earthquake in Haiti in 2010, only 2.5% of the $196 million in relief aid went to uh, Haitian companies. Much of the rest was awarded to D.C.-based construction companies. The report went on to say that in 2005, during another natural disaster, namely Katrina, corporate looting dominated the scene again, dominated the, the recovery monies. And then lastly, what's worth mentioning, oftentimes we get confused or misled, I should say, by the notion of what's good for the stock market is good for the overall population. But what is not mentioned, and this is according to third quarter 2020 information from the Federal Reserve Distributional Financial Accounts, the bottom 90% only own 11.7% of stocks and mutual funds, while the top 10% own 88.3% of those funds. So what's good for Wall Street 
what's good for the stocks is not good for the majority population, but it is good for the wealthy. Anyhow, with that backdrop of the overall economic environment in which we live, we now turn our focus to particularly the black experience as we continue to celebrate Juneteenth with this Bringing Light into Darkness show report. We have already defined the great racial wealth divide in our country, but what led to the, this great racial wealth divide is the subject of the balance of our Bringing Light into Darkness show tonight. So it should be self-evident that during the period of slavery that ended with the Emancipation Proclamation that Lincoln signed on January 1 of 1863, the potential to accumulate wealth for African Americans was non-existent. Therefore, as a second-class citizen, African Americans from the very birth of our nation were at a complete disadvantage to compete economically as they emerged from the slavery period. At this point, it is worth mentioning that just like in St. Dominique, later to be known as Haiti after the first successful black slave revolt in history resulted in Haiti gaining independence in 1804, before the independence of Haiti as St. Dominique and before it could occur, slavery had largely fueled the accumulation of wealth that made France the world power it is today. St. Dominique, in fact, was arguably the most profitable colonial possession in the history of the world. Well, the same thing can be said for the UK and the United States, each whom built their economic might off the unpaid labor of enslaved peoples during the colonial and neocolonial periods of history. In the U.S., cotton was the monoculture that drove industrialization and accumulation of wealth of our nation. Slavery, unpaid labor, was the energy that powered this engine. Meanwhile, the profound lack of accumulation of wealth by blacks was the obvious result of slavery. So despite the Union victory in the Civil War that gave some 4 million enslaved blacks their freedom, significant challenges awaited black during the Reconstruction period. The 13th Amendment, adopted late in 1865, officially abolished slavery, but still the, the question of black people's status in the post-war South remained, and white Southerners gradually reestablished civil authority in the former Confederate states in 1865 and 1866 as they enacted a series of laws known as the Black Codes, which were designed to restrict black people's rights and more easily criminalize their behavior and continue to ensure their availability as a cheap source of labor. All of this despite the progressive visions of the Reconstruction period. So these Black Codes and convict leasing and the Jim Crow laws of segregation are the forms of oppression that replaced slavery. In a PBS documentary called Slavery by Another Name, Glenn Efell speaks with Douglas Blackman, the author and the film's co-executive producer, about this largely forgotten or omitted piece of history and the forces that propelled it. They tell the story of the adapted forced labor practices known as convict leasing and the black codes that made law-abiding blacks into criminals that could be leased, that this is what helped extend slavery long after the end of the Civil War. So this suppressed history you need to know to complete this understanding of how evolving new forms of oppression replaced slavery is essentially this. Slavery was part of the founding of our country and was legal until the consummation of the Civil War and the Emancipation Proclamation of 1865. 
Reconstruction followed the law change, but required the force of Union soldier occupation of the South to enforce the new legalized freedoms of blacks, and the Union occupation of the South lasted from 1865 to 1877. It is during this post-Civil War period that the Reconstruction Amendments, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment, were empowered. However, the 13th Amendment was the first of the Reconstruction Amendments and was about abolishing slavery and became part, an official part of our Constitution in December of 1865. However, the 13th Amendment language itself included a loophole in that you could drive a truck through, thus making the law impotent to carrying out its stated cause to free blacks. It read, neither slavery or involuntary servitude shall exist within the U.S. However, it had an exception clause, and that exception clause was, quote, except as a punishment for crime where the party shall be duly convicted, shall exist. So the black codes were essentially the way the South could criminalize, and they did criminalize black behavior. So terms like vagrancy, not having a job, could become a crime of up to two years in jail. Yet I couldn't prove I didn't have a job if I was a black person because of a lack of pay stubs and those types of things and the lack of work, of documented work. So it's interesting to look at the prison population composition before and after these black codes were enacted. Take Alabama, for example. So in Alabama in 1850, before Reconstruction and the Black Codes, 99% of those that were incarcerated were white. By the 1980s, following the Black Codes, 85% of incarcerated were black. So convict leasing became a system that provided prison labor to plantation owners and private corporations to ensure the cotton industry would remain unaffected once the slaves were freed. It was arguably worse than slavery in that locked up for even these minor charges Blacks were used as free labor while behind bars, they were often worked to death because if they died, the state would send replacements. It's instructive that today, the disproportional incarceration of blacks continue. They make up 13% of the population, but make up some 40% of our incarcerated population. So this is what the Jim Crow laws did. It made it almost impossible for a black man in the South in the early 1900s to be not guilty of potentially being arrested. While slavery was outlawed, blacks were criminalized and their labor continued to not be their own through convict leasing. Again, stunting so many families of their potential to accumulate wealth. So when you look at this period following slavery in which the 40 acres and a mule promised to blacks was reneged on by the United States government, and then this criminalizing of, in, of blacks through the black codes, this is what is referred to as slavery by another name. And following this period, as you approach the World War II era, additional prejudices kept blacks from accumulating wealth at the same rates as, as whites. When you look at the GI Bill, and when you look at Social Security, you can see the prejudicial impacts and the advantages whites had over blacks in these two important programs of supplementing the accumulation of wealth for American citizens. In an interesting paper called The Excluded, an estimate of the consequences of denying Social Security to agricultural and domestic workers by David Stowe's spelt S-T-O-E-S-Z at Keene University in 2016, he reveals a number of interesting insights. 
The Social Security Act of 1935 prohibited domestic and agricultural workers from receiving benefits. And so once again, you have an advantage given to whites in that they could access Social Security benefits at a much higher rate than blacks because black and Latinos made up a huge portion of these agricultural workers that were prohibited from receiving benefits from the Social Security Act of 1935. So when it came to the exclusion of agricultural and domestic workers from the original provisions of Social Security, these occupational groups that were disproportionately made up of minorities of color, for whatever reasons, the result was that more than 15 million of American workers, almost one-third of the labor force, were denied a public pension effectively consigning them to work for any wage available until they were no longer able. Such was the plight of a second-class citizen. The paper goes on to reveal that accordingly, the celebrated African-American historian John Hope Franklin observed, quote, when the Social Security Board was established in 1935, provisions were made for old age assistance and unemployment benefits in a large number of categories. But since agricultural and domestic workers were excluded, a tremendous proportion of the Negro population failed to qualify for the benefits provided by the Act. One historian calculated that, quote, more than three-fifths of black workers, those employed in agricultural labor or domestic service, were excluded from coverage, while another put the figure at two-thirds of employed blacks. These sources can be accessed by contacting the show. In addition to the 1935 Social Security Act, President Franklin Roosevelt signed the GI Bill into law on June 22, 1944. It laid the foundation for benefits that would help generations of veterans achieve social mobility. However, it too prejudicially benefited whites over black. It was formerly known as the Servicemen's Readjustment Act of 1944. The bill made unprecedented commitments to the nation's veterans. For instance, it provided federal assistance to veterans in the form of housing and unemployment benefits. But of all the benefits offered through the GI Bill, funding for higher education and job training emerged as the most popular. This overview of the GI Bill is from an article, The GI Bill Opened Doors to College for Many Vets, but Politicians Created a Separate One for Blacks, written by Joseph Johnson, Assistant Associate Professor at Mississippi State on November 10, 2020. He goes on to write that more than 2 million veterans flocked to college campuses throughout the country, but even as former service members entered college, not all of them accessed the bill's benefits in the same way. That's because white Southern politicians designed the distribution of benefits under the GI Bill to uphold their segregationist beliefs. Described another way from the book When Affirmative Action Was White, An Untold History of Racial Inequality in the 20th Century America by Ira Katznelson, no other New Deal initiative had as great an impact on changing the country as the Selective Service Readjustment Act, the GI Bill. It aimed at reintegrating 16 million veterans. It reached 8 out of 10 men born in the 1920s. Even today, this legislation, which quickly came to be called the GI Bill of Rights, qualifies as the most wide-ranging set of social benefits ever offered by the federal government in a single comprehensive initiative. 
Between 1944 and 1971, federal spending for former soldiers in this quote-unquote model welfare system totaled over $95 billion. By 1948, 15% of the federal budget was devoted to the GI Bill, and the Veterans Administration employed 17% of the federal workforce. With the help of the GI Bill, millions bought homes, attended college, started business ventures, and found jobs commensurate with their skills. Through these opportunities and by advancing the momentum toward suburban living, mass consumption, and the creation of wealth and economic security, this legislation created middle-class America. No other instrument was nearly as important. Katznelson goes on to write that on April 12, 1995, on the 50th anniversary of FDR's death in Warm Springs, Georgia, President Clinton had this to say regarding the GI Bill. FDR's most enduring legacy was not Social Security or any other landmark bill, but the vision most clearly embodied in the GI Bill, which passed Congress in June 1944, just a few days after D-Day, which gave generations of veterans a chance to get an education, to build strong families and good lives, and to build the nation's strongest economy ever, to change the face of America. The GI Bill helped to unleash a prosperity never known before, end quote. The consensus historical representation, though, of the GI Bill in American history is that it raised the entire nation to a plateau of social well-being never before experienced in U.S. history. But this is a revisionist history. The truth is that it raised the well-being of white families to a plateau of social well-being never before experienced into a a strong middle-class America, but at the same time left blacks behind, increasing the already great racial wealth divide. A 2006 article in the Journal of Blacks in Higher Education details the advantages and disadvantages the black population faced when putting the GI Bill to use. Edward Humes writes, quote, black veterans and their families were denied their fair share of the multi-generational enriching impact of home ownership and economic security that the GI Bill conferred on a majority of white veterans their children, and their grandchildren. Such an imbalance went against Roosevelt's intentions as he had purposefully created the first social legislation that did not discriminate on the basis of race. According to Humes, 28% of white veterans went to college on the GI Bill, while only 12% of black veterans did so. So while the bill itself was progressive, much of the country still functioned under both covert and blatant segregation. And in the summer of 1947, 3,000 VA home loans were issued in Mississippi, with only two of those loans being granted to black veterans. This according to the inequality hidden within the race-neutral GI Bill article written by Shannon Luter's manual in September 18th of 2017. So what we have defined so far tonight are the different methods in which African-American population in the United States has systematically been discriminated from when it comes to these economic wealth accumulation issues. They have consistently throughout history of our country been denied an equal playing ground in which to accumulate wealth, which to a large extent defines systemic racism. We indicated with slavery, of course, there was no chance to develop any kind of wealth accumulation, and that was followed by the Jim Crow laws of segregation and the black codes that 
made blacks' behavior a crime that allowed for convict leasing and the disproportionate incarceration of black. And then we've discussed more modern-day forms of discrimination embedded within the application of the Social Security Act of 1935 and the GI Bill, in which for blacks there was a denial of equal access in both or from both. So to complete the panorama of forms of discrimination or the results thereof, we end the show with several more examples of modern-day discrimination results. In the article, 10 Solutions to Bridge the Racial Wealth Divide, dated April of 2019 by Dedrick Asante Mohammed, Chuck Collins, Derek Hamilton, and Josh Hoxie, quote, at every education level, blacks are two times as likely to be unemployed compared to their similarly educated white peers, end quote. As of 2019, black men were 2.5 times more likely than white men to be killed by police, according to August 2019 research from Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. In a 2016 article, The Problem of Resegregation is Suburbia by Amanda Colson Hurley, quote, a black family that earns $157,000 per year is less likely to qualify for a prime loan than is a white family earning $40,000 per year, which means that white families can borrow heavily at favorable rates while black families are far less likely to receive a safe, fair loan product, end quote. As the Economic Policy Institute in their State of Working America data library detailed in their Unemployment by Race and Educational piece in 2019, black workers aged 16 and older are far more likely to be unemployed than white workers at every level of education. So in conclusion, when we ask what is systemic racism, it's a form of oppression that disproportionately marginalizes people of color. Its result is that people of color are treated as lesser human beings and accordingly are offered significantly less chance to succeed and then is falsely rationalized as some type of lack of personal responsibility on behalf of the disenfranchised. It is manifested in a host of quality of life indices relative to whites that makes success significantly less likely at every varying level of personal responsibility with regard to wealth and income equality. The rates are two times higher in infant mortality rates. There's higher unemployment, poverty rates as well, less access to health care, higher rates of incarceration, and other quality of life indices all resulting in this weatherizing effect that reduces the life quality and life expectancy of people of color. Here in the 21st century, over the last couple of years with the COVID virus, black workers were at greater risk from COVID-19 than their white peers. Blacks were 11.9% of the workforce, but were in 16.6% of the six most COVID vulnerable jobs where you had people to people contact, the grocery and convenience and drug stores, public transit, trucking, housing and postal services, health care, child care and social services, building, cleaning service workers. All of those cumulatively represented the six most COVID vulnerable jobs in which blacks were disproportionately overrepresented by 50%. As a result, and combined with other health issues due to disparities, black Americans made up some 12.5% of the U.S. population in 2020, but accounted for some 22.4% of COVID-19 deaths according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. 
But what I found to be the most empirical indication that blacks to this day are second-class citizens in the United States was from an article by Geneva Pittman in the Health Magazine, July 14th. It was back in 2011, so we're in the 21st century, and she writes about an article called Black Men Survive Longer in Prison Than Outside, according to a study. And there's been a couple of studies that have indicated this, but the quality of life indicator here is the black men survive longer in prison than out of prison as compared to white. The study was published in the Annals of Epidemiology. The study involves some 100,000 men between the ages of 20 and 79 who were held in North Carolina prison between 1995 and 2005. 60% of them were black. The study that was done on North Carolina inmates called Black Men Survive Longer in Prison Than Out of Prison, and it was a study that showed that black men were half as likely to die at any given time if they're in prison than if they're out of prison. That's astonishing that life as a black person in our country is so egregious that you have a longer life expectancy if you are in prison than if you are out in the free world. This pattern did not hold up for imprisoned white men who are slightly more likely to die in prison than outside, according to these 2011 findings. It is this 21st century state of America that reflects a profound lack of progress in efforts towards racial justice. See you next week. Coming up next, do not go anywhere unless you're not on KOOP.org right now. Switch on over to the internet if you're on the FM dial to hear Emo Diaries with co-op's very own Stephanie at the Disco. I can't wait. And we go out as we do every week with Land of Navity. Yeah.